Last week we looked at the incredible moment of the crossing over where the nation of Israel was stepping out of wilderness and into the promised land. We ended last week with this incredible encounter between Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army. This incredible encounter between a natural man and a supernatural being. Now what we see in this moment is actually something more than what the text initially might imply. And we can see that because Joshua steps into this encounter addressed by the commander of the Lord's army. That word commander could actually be translated prince of the Lord's army. And what happens when Joshua asks that commander, that prince, are you for us or for them? And the commander, the prince says, no, neither. Neither. He is for the the Lord, simply. He's not for Joshua. He's not for those in Canaan, in Jericho, primarily. And, And so Joshua responds in an incredible way. He falls to his knees in worship. What do we see throughout the word when people fall to their knees in worship, in the encounter of an angelic being? In most instances, the angel encourages the individual to stand up because the angel is not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship and angels understand that. This commander of the Lord's army doesn't ask Joshua to stand up, but rather declares to him, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place that you are standing on is holy. And Joshua did that. I think that's an incredible indication that this is not just an angel. The next dynamic is in 6 verse 2, where we see Joshua being told, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. This is the voice of the Lord. Now, the implication of the text is that this is the same conversation that's happening, that the commander of the Lord's army, this prince, is actually a pre-incarnate Christ, a manifestation of God himself, saying, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. There's an authority in this this commander that is significant. So that, that could add a different dynamic to how we look at what happens and what unfolds in Jericho. Let's read Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 and 15 to 21. That's going to be the main thrust of our, of our time together. And hopefully we can, we can hear God's voice as we unpack that. I think it's important for us to emphasize as well that when we look at application of a text, we can let the Holy Spirit speak to us and lead us as we hear the text itself. Yes, we could look at contemporary application 
We could nod to the text and then build a picture based on current life. But actually, sometimes, often, in fact, probably more often than not, it's better to let the text speak and to let the Spirit lead us and guide us as we unpack it, because there will be relevant truth for us always as we read God's Word. So let's pray and then let's hear chapter 6 together. Father, thank you for the chance to open your Word and to dive in, dig in, delve into this. A a difficult, a, a controversial, a challenging passage, but one that again reaffirms, reassures, Uh, encourages us that you are the God of heaven and that we as your special portion, your treasure, are in good hands when we trust in you. So chapter 6 verses 1 through to 7 and 15 to 21. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven rams, horn, trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times, while the priests blow the ram's horns. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, Have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the troops, Move forward, march around the city, and have the armed men go ahead of the ark of the Lord. Verse 15. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priests blew the ram's horns and Joshua said to the troops, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But the city and everything in it is set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will be set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the troops shouted and the ram's horns sounded. When they heard the blast of the ram's horn, the troops gave a great shout and the walls collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep and donkey. It's not an easy portion of God's word for us to read. We're going to dig into the ethical questions that are raised as we we take time this morning. But in order to do that, we have to understand the fuller picture that's going on before we Look with our contemporary lens, our contemporary perspective into an ancient time. 
what we see is that Jericho was a well-fortified city. It had been fortified uh, as it was constructed, but, but it was strongly fortified, it says in verse 1, because of the Israelites. So no one's going in, no one is coming out. In a sense, it becomes like a prison for the people. And what's fascinating is that outside the city walls, you have this, as I've heard mentioned in various other sermons or, or com commentaries on this portion of God's word, you have this ragtag of Israelites that have formed an army. This group of people who have very little military experience. If you look at the history of the people, they've been in captivity, not this generation in particular, but, but the previous generation in captivity. This group have wandered in the wilderness. So to think that they are equipped to go up against a fortified city, it's an incredible thought. Now, as they approach Jericho, they are called to become an instrument of God's justice and judgment. And we're going to come to that. We're going to unpack that as we go this morning. It's important for us to emphasize again, when we look at chapter 1, verse 5 of Joshua, what was the promise of God? The promise of God was that as God's portion, as their special treasure, if they held to faithfulness in God's ways, it says in verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. So as they step into this, this uh, battle formation, as they step into this place of, of action, there is the promise that no one will be able to stand against them and they are called to become an instrument of God's justice and judgment. But the manner of the attack is really strange, isn't it? When we look at chapter 6 and we look at how it's laid out, it has lots of sevens in it, doesn't it? What does the biblical uh, number seven represent? It represents completeness or perfection. And so there's, there's emphasis there with the seven priests, the seven rams, horns, the seven days. The seven uh, is significant in this moment. But the manner of the attack is really odd. And, and you have to ask, why do it this way? Why do it this way? Well, when we look at prior chapters in Joshua, let me see if it was chapter, chapter 2. We have this incredible encounter with Rahab and a promise given to Rahab as the spies were sent out to look at the land. You have this encounter with Rahab and Rahab decides in this encounter with the spies to seize the opportunity to lay down her allegiance to, ultimately to Satan, the allegiance to Satan in his many guises, in the, in the many servants that follow Satan, the false gods that people have come to worship. Rahab essentially lays down her allegiance to all that opposes the, uh, the God of, of the Israelites, the God of heaven, Yahweh, and embraces Yahweh. She does that. Now, what we know of the Canaanites as a, a, as a people is that they were incredibly wicked. They had as a whole culture rejected the God of heaven, embraced the false gods and embodied evil. They embraced the Satan, the adversary and all of the followers of the adversary and they had embodied evil. But why march around the city for six days 
in silence. Why do that before the seventh day of, of victory? I want to propose some potential answers to this because it doesn't tell us ultimately why they did that. It just says this is how they did it. And I wonder whether it might have been for these reasons. This is just conjecture, but again, we look at the account of Rahab. We look at the nature and character of God in his word. Is it possible that this six-day march before the seventh-day victory was to give the people time to repent and trust in Yahweh just as Rahab had done? Just as Rahab had done. Because Rahab responded to the arrival of Israel with the appropriate response. So is it possible that God's giving the people six days to, to respond? The second thought is, why do it this way? Why march around for six days in silence before the seventh day of victory? Perhaps to demonstrate that this was going to be God's battle and God's victory. So there's no need for a, a surprise attack. Or the normal identifiers of warfare, what would they be? Well, a loud, hard and fast battle, a loud, hard and fast attack. Now, this is a task for the commander of the Lord's armies. We've heard that already when we look at Joshua. This is the battle of the commander of the Lord's armies. We see that ultimately when the walls fall down. You might have heard it said in other uh, teachings that the people blew the, the horns and they shouted so loud. So they blew the horns so hard, shouted so loud that the walls fell down. I, I don't think it was quite like that. I think that there is a supernatural dynamic going on here. This is the battle of the Lord. And what happens is that as the walls fall down, the army of Israel partners with God's will for that place at that time. Psalm 103, these words you'll know so well that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. You think, Stuart, how does that verse, how do these words fit into the battle at Jericho? How is God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love? Well, the meaning of God's word is always revealed uh, in the on-the-ground realities of life. Let me say that again. The meaning of God's word is always revealed in the on-the-ground realities of life and how God interacts in those realities. Now, if these characteristics are true of God, then they will be revealed even in this moment in history. If his character is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, they will also be seen even in these moments. So let's look at that. Gracious and compassionate and abounding in love. How can we possibly see that in this moment? Well, it's seen first and foremost in the fact that Israel is God's special treasure. That God is gracious and compassionate and abounding in faithful love. God has lifted the nation out of captivity. He has offered them a way of hope and a way of promise. So we see those characteristics in Israel as his special treasure. How do we see it even in the land of Canaan and the people of Jericho? We've seen it with Rahab. We've seen it in the, the welcome of Rahab 
the the embracing of Rahab into the family of God as she laid down her way, as she repented of her sin, as she embraced Yahweh out of the city and the people who have been devoted to destruction. So there is grace and compassion. There is an abundance of love seen in this moment. God is also slow to anger. Yes, God is slow to anger, but God is not devoid of anger. In your anger, do not sin, God says. The word says, so therefore there is a place for anger, but it has to be righteous and holy. So God is slow to anger, but he's not devoid of it. God gives Jericho time. Now it tells us here that he gave them six days. Well, yes, he gave them six days, but actually, no, he gave them far more than six days. And we know that when we ask the question, why were the people of Israel in captivity for more than 400 years? Well, Genesis chapter 15. Here we have God speaking to Abraham. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, so that is written to uh, to lay out the 400 years. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why were the people of Israel in captivity for 400 years? In part, not only this reason, but in part because the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure, the Amorites being the people of the land of Canaan. What was this full measure of the iniquity of the Amorites? Well, like many nations and peoples of that day, not Israel, but a a number of nations, certainly in the land of Canaan, they were sacrificing their babies and their children to their false gods. They were engaged in a whole range of sexual practices and sexual immorality in a worship context uh, and inevitably in a cultural context that was totally against God's plan for that gift that was given to humanity. So much of that was wrapped around Molech uh, and uh, another gods that, that were Uh, worshipped in that land at that time, Molech being the god of life and reproduction, the god of fire, there were gods of fertility, etc. And and what they would do, for example, is they would bring their children to a metallic statue of Molech, Molech with his outstretched hands resting over a, a burning fire, and they would burn their children to death in the hands of this statue of Molech as an offering to him. Now, this was ultimately the the peak of their iniquity. So that, when we look at Genesis 15, verse 16 in particular, this is, in essence, the, the full measure of the iniquity of the Amorites. And possibly, I would propose that this peak would have reached its peak in the six days that the Israelites were marching round the 
the, the city walls. In that moment of God's final offer of grace, where they could have repented, I suspect that they were crying out to their own gods. And one of the ways that they did that was sacrificing their children. And another way that they did that was through all manner of sexual immorality. And so God is slow to anger, but not devoid of, of anger. And what we get in this moment on the seventh day is righteous anger that is poured out on a people who have taken the gift of life and the gifts that come with life and they've turned them into an offence and an abomination. Now, there are ethical questions that are raised in this. We touched on this a little bit when we looked at Egypt and we looked at the fact that, that Pharaoh and his officials were the ones dictating to the people what should happen. For example, the killing of the firstborn. And we questioned whether or not the general person, the average person on the ground, would be guilty of, of that. We touched on the fact that when the Nazis were, uh, were establishing their power in Germany and the, the people of the nation were simply following the orders and instruction of those in power. Was everyone guilty? Was everyone guilty in Germany? Was everyone guilty in Egypt? Could everybody be guilty in Jericho? And the answer that we can offer for that, I think, is, is yes. Because you're either guilty by your activity or you're guilty because of your lack of activity. What do I mean by that? You're guilty because you go along with the sin, you engage in it, or you're guilty because you do not take a stand against the sin when you know you should. Was everybody guilty in Jericho? Well, when you understand the gospel, you understand that ultimately everyone is guilty and deserving of judgment. Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, God's standard. But the wickedness of the Canaanite culture had the potential to be, and at times in the future it was, totally destructive on God's people. Because what happened was people got entangled and snared in the worship of the Canaanite people and it drew them away from the first command, which is to love God only. He is the only God. He is a jealous God, the only God worthy of worship. So was everyone guilty? Well, yeah, everyone is guilty. Without grace, we're all guilty. We know that ultimately the culture was so entrenched in its sin. And there was no one standing up against that sin. Everyone was guilty. Remember as well that, that, that Israel is God's special possession, his special treasure. They're called to be set apart, to be holy, in order to be a light unto the nations, to demonstrate the better way under the protection of the only true almighty God. And they were carriers of the, the truth. They were carriers of the truth. And it was essential that they, they remain faithful so that this solution to all of humanity's ills, all of humanity's struggles, challenges, heartbreaks and sin could be revealed in the coming Messiah. The Messiah that is birthed out of a nation 
preserved in the midst of nations of wickedness so that redemption could be possible. And, and what we see is that in order for that to happen, sometimes the wickedness had to be dealt with and destroyed so that people could be redeemed ultimately for anyone in Israel, but also ultimately for people beyond Israel, all who would receive it. Could Jericho have repented? I believe, yes, Jericho could have repented because Rahab did. We have evidence on the ground that Rahab, part of Jericho, repented. What about this idea that everything is destroyed? The Bible tells us that all life is destroyed. The whole city is burned. All the possessions are taken and they are set apart for God. It's called the ban. Everything is accursed. It is it is devoted to God for destruction. What about this idea? We could have the simple answer to this, which is ultimately God knows best. If he is who we believe he is, and that is an all-knowing, wise, absolutely just and holy God who sees the end from the beginning and understands the consequences of an action, of doing things a certain way or not doing things a certain way, then we have to trust that God knows best. So when we say everyone was guilty and this level of destruction and judgment had to happen, we have to lean on the fact that God knows best. God revealed his, his might in Egypt to display his power to the nations and Jericho knew about God's power displayed in Egypt. How do we know that Jericho knew about God's power? Because Rahab told the spies that they had heard all about it and that Jericho was terrified. They understood that God was incredible, God was mighty. But ultimately, isn't it just like everything in life? When we're caught in sin, when we're enslaved and when we are enjoying our sin, very often, even though we know it's wrong, even though we know there is a better way, led by a more powerful God, do we let go of our sin? Do we let go of that which we are entrenched in and enjoying? God knows the consequence of not wiping out this culture. As hard as that seems to us today, we're in a different age, we're under a different phase of God's plan, we could say. Just as God knew the consequence of not bringing about the flood in Genesis 6, what would the consequence of that be? And the consequence would have been that all humanity would have been lost to evil. All Israel may have been lost had they not acted with the strong and mighty hand of judgment and justice in this moment. We know that the people of Israel were drawn and enticed into the kinds of worship that was going on in Jericho as they continue in their pursuit of taking the land of promise and, and not cleansing the land fully. They're enticed and drawn into all manner of inappropriate act. God knows the consequence of not wiping this culture out and therefore a strong and mighty hand of judgment and justice is 
required. Now, is that a totally satisfactory answer? Does that give us peace when we read this? Possibly not. But there are times when we have to step back and rest in the tension of knowing that whilst we we don't understand the details of the plan, we understand the nature of the planner. When we don't understand the details of the plan, we rest in that tension because we understand the nature of the planner. Now in Jericho, God was patient and slow to anger. He waited over four centuries not just the six days, over four centuries, but that patience eventually ran out. The limit to God's patience wasn't restricted, though, to every portion beyond his own. And it's so important for us when we think about that. The fact that, yes, Israel are living under God's favour in this moment as they take Jericho, but what happens when they go to the next the next uh, village, the next place, the next city. We could call this the tale of two cities, in essence, as we look at this word today. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Remember, they were told that everything in Jericho was to be destroyed, everything living, and all the possessions were to be brought into the treasury of God. The Israelites were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Didn't God say that that would happen if they didn't follow his instruction? What we see here is... God's covenant of protection, conditional. Conditional upon the people's obedience to his instruction. And when we read chapter 7, verse 1, what we see in Ai, or Ai, depending on how you pronounce it, with with Achan, with Achan, son of Carmi, is in essence a microcosm of what the nation will do in the years ahead. They will not always follow obediently God's instruction. And what happens? Well, they hear God's clear instruction and they willfully disobey it for their own ends. What happens in this next battle? Israel is defeated. Ai, i.e. is not handed over to Israel. The people are routed and there is great sorrow because of their lack of obedience. God operates in words of hope and words of of warning, under the hand of blessing and under the hand of judgment. In everything, we see the gospel of God, which would come to be known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, That call for us to take ourselves off the throne of our own hearts or anything that we've put on the throne of our hearts and place God there to rule and to reign. And I love this whole dynamic of what happens in Jericho because it reveals so much to us. I also love, in particular, how the story of Rahab is included in this really challenging, dramatic account. 
It shows us that nobody is too far from the outstretched hand of invitation of God. That in her wisdom, in her humility, she took hold of that outstretched hand of invitation, along with her family who entered the sanctuary of her home. Just like the Israelites who painted their doorposts and and in faith remained inside behind that door and were spared the judgment of God, so too is Rahab and her family spared because of their trust in God's protection. And just to close, I want to encourage us that our community and your community is full of Rahabs. People that have taken a wrong turn in life. People that have been brought up in a culture of iniquity. But God's hand of invitation can lead them out of that and lead them from coming judgment to safety. That is the gospel as we know it in Jesus Christ. And so for that, we see in a text that was written we might say three and a half thousand years ago by by conservative estimate that we see the gospel laid bare in the Jericho encounter and the life of Rahab. Let's give thanks to God as we close in our time of prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance to open your word, to dig into your truth, to be transformed and changed by it. And God, we know there's, there's so much more in this encounter that we could dig into, but we thank you, God, that you can teach us, instruct us, challenge us and change us as we hear your word. Father, help us to learn from it. Be transformed by the Spirit in Jesus' mighty name.